Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with John Reinsma, Managing Director of Developer Confluence Senior Living, which is a subsidiary of Denver-based real estate investment and development firm, Confluent Development. It's no secret that the sky-high cost of building materials is making life hard for senior living developers in 2021, and Confluent Senior Living is no exception. Reinsma said the company even stockpiled wood this year to save money, a risk that they wouldn't normally take. The silver lining to those challenges is that this period has allowed the developer to slow down and rethink how senior living communities are developed and designed. But before we get to that interview, I wanted to promote our next Build Conference happening in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Build is an annual event dedicated to the latest trends in architecture, design, and innovation for senior living owners, operators, and developers. Hear how industry players are redefining senior living development and planting their stakes now to reshape the future. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com events for the latest updates on Build and our other scheduled events. And now, here's my interview with John Reinsma, Managing Director of Confluent Senior Living. John Reinsma, thank you for coming on Transform today. So I wanted to start with kind of a big picture. Obviously, it has been a pretty challenging year across the board with COVID-19. But I'm curious, how has the last you know year and a half gone for Confluent Senior Living in terms of the development projects you're working on? Yeah, it's been a rough year and a half, uh, to be honest. Unfortunately, our operating portfolio was was not immune to the same impacts that that all the other groups across the country, similar to us, dealt with with respect to occupancy and restriction issues. So it's it's been rough. But you know, I've been listening to this podcast and obviously reading Senior Housing News, and so this has all been discussed ad nauseum. I don't need to spend a ton of time on the operations, but I think with respect to development, we've really been focusing on kind of two separate things. One was the projects that we were currently working on. So going into the pandemic or or going into early 2020, we had four projects that we had under land control that we planned on breaking ground in 2020. And given the uncertainty of the world and just the absolute chaos we were all living in and and the certain lack of certainty, we we felt like we needed to put them on hold to see how everything was going to play out. So we successfully renegotiated three out of the four land contracts that we had. And then we have subsequently broken ground on two out of those three with the third one to start construction in June. So for us, this was a this was a huge accomplishment and something we're really proud of. There were a lot of hurdles to pull that off. The highest, I would say, was probably putting together the capital stack. We had a lot of conversations with our investors, but you know, ultimately, they came to the same conclusion that we did, that the senior housing industry was going to quickly rebound from the pandemic. And the fundamentals of the asset class as an investment will hold strong once the crisis came to a conclusion, which we're, we're seeing right now. So we were able to figure out the equity side of things. The lenders was a different story. Once we had the equity lined up, we still needed to find debt for all three deals, which as as you've heard many times was an enormous challenge. And I think the fact that we were able to secure three separate loans for new construction in 2020 for ground breaks that uh, happened early 2021 is a real testament, in my opinion, to the leadership of Confluent, our CEO, CFO, and our finance team, and their ability to leverage past relationships uh, and use our our track record. So that, that was a 
tough but great thing that happened uh, with with really only an extreme amount of, of hard work and, and decision making. So that was kind of the first the first area of focus. The second one was a, a little a little harder because it involved us giving up control. You know, it was really focusing on our operators and the projects that we had under asset management or were under construction. And we learned really quickly, you know, in February, March, that the best thing that we could do to support our operators was just to get out of their way, let them do what they do best, which is take care of the residents. And so since we had put all these projects on hold, we used that pause as an opportunity to reevaluate our design standards and, and protocols and determine, do we need to make a change, a, a fundamental change to the way that we're approaching senior housing development and design? And what we did is we set up meetings or Zoom calls with every architect that we've worked with, every architect and interior designer that we've worked with since we started doing senior housing development. And we sat down and just listened to them. And we wanted to hear what type of ideas they had, what other concepts other developers or, or operators were implementing. And we pulled together this, this really pretty long list of, of concepts and design ideas that, that we heard from them. And then we discussed all those with our operators. And so that led to something that we'll call the, that we've called the whole health standard. And, and I think we'll talk about that later, but it's really an innovative plan for us to reevaluate senior housing development and our portfolio across the country to, to build healthy spaces in, in buildings. So yeah, it was a really rough year and a half, but with those two efforts, it was, we, we feel like we had some real positive uh, highlights come out of that as well. And you're right. I do want to ask some questions about the whole health standard. Uh, that's definitely on my list to get to. I wanted to actually go back though and and talk again about the ways that this year has been challenging. So, you know, fast forward to now, what would you say is still hard about senior living development and in what ways is it is it still challenging? Well, it's challenging. I'll start. It's challenging in a new way, which has to do with construction and commodities prices and, and all of that craziness that's going on. So maybe I'll segregate that. The ways that it's still challenging with respect to the pandemic, you know, we're still dealing with some perception issues of what senior housing is. And it's certainly dissipating, but, you know, a lot of the stories that came out early on in the pandemic and, and a lot of the confusion about what really is the difference between, for instance, a assisted living and, and a skilled nursing facility or, or hospice relative to independent living. I mean, there was a lot of confusion broadly across the country and, and who was really being impacted by by the pandemic. That has gotten a lot better. We have some, some great industry advocacy groups that have, have done some great work. I know you guys have covered the People of Senior Housing, the POSH initiative. We were a huge supporter of that very early on. And a lot of that work was was crucial and, and made some some real inroads, but we're still dealing with a lack of full understanding of how safe our residents are in our buildings and how safe they have been over the last year and a half. So that that's an area that it's it's still it's still tough. And you mentioned the price of building materials. I mean, I wrote a story recently about how those are still you know sky high. So what are you seeing in terms of the the price of building materials now, and what is this doing to the projects that you're working on? Yeah, so I'll reference back to those projects that we put on hold from 2020. And I think that there's kind of a, a line of demarcation, and it's the projects that were priced and started pre the economy uh, roaring back, and the ones that are, are post, the ones that are where we're at now. So on those three that I mentioned, thankfully, well, two of them are already have already broken ground. So they broke ground before lumber went went crazy. And then the third one is going to break ground next 
next month. And that one is kind of a tweener. So thankfully, we had a lot of that priced out and committed to from the subcontractor community ahead of time. Uh, this is in, in Ohio. But we really got hit with the lumber. And it's, I don't know what it's at today, but it's it's certainly four to five times higher than it was when we priced the deal initially in 2019 before we put it on hold. So one thing that we've done on that project specifically we don't we will not have our guaranteed maximum price on that deal from our general contractor for another probably 3 weeks we've already bought the lumber so we now own a whole bunch of wood that's sitting in a warehouse in Ohio ready for us to to break ground and and use that use that lumber that is not a risk we would typically take one that i don't anticipate we'll take again but it was what we felt was necessary in order to continue to meet our economic thresholds and counteract some of the craziness that's going on in the commodities pricing. So that's kind of what's happened in the past. What's going forward, we don't see this changing anytime soon. There will be a relief valve here. We will find equilibrium again in the senior housing development world. That'll come from both the supply and the demand side. But as of right now and in the near future, this is really problematic and and it's preventing projects from, from becoming economically viable. You had mentioned that you had revisited some 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 projects that were in the works before the pandemic. I was also curious to know, so as you're revisiting these, are there any ways that you can tweak the project to make things work, you know, find ways to save money somewhere or, you know, change, I don't know, a, a parking lot from one way to another to try to save on certain building materials? I don't know. Are there ways that you can uh, tweak projects to help move them along? It's a great question and something that we're trying, we're pulling on every creative ability that we have to figure that out. I don't have an answer for that yet, unfortunately, because the run-up in lumber and steel has been so dramatic, we have not figured out a way to, to fully combat that. On every project, every development project we go through, I would say we have a couple rounds of healthy value engineering, but we are really, really sensitive to to not cutting the quality of a project down so far that essentially it's just become a short-sighted exercise where we're not setting our operators up for success on, on the building that we're delivering to them. So because lumber has gone up by you know 5x, that doesn't mean that we're now going to go drop one of our dining venues just to get a deal out of the ground. We'd rather wait to figure this out, either wait for the supplier demand to correct themselves and make sure that we're continuing to build the the type of product that we and our operators are accustomed to. So we've talked a lot about challenges and the way the development has gotten harder in senior living. I, I do want to talk about, you know, you'd mentioned that the recovery is underway in this industry. So uh, so I want to know, has has anything gotten easier this year or are there are there new opportunities that you see in the market that maybe weren't there before the pandemic? I love that question. It seems like so many of the questions that we get are all about the negativity of the last year and a half. Yeah, it's the first thing that comes to mind, I would say, is the ability to find sites and the ability to negotiate terms. So in 2019, I would say that on just purely the development side, our biggest headache, our biggest hurdle to overcome was would be to find land sites that both met our criteria with respect to demographics and location, met the pro forma with respect to the cost. And even if you could figure out both of those, then you had to deal with land sellers who really had felt like and probably did have a majority of the of the control in that negotiation. And so 
were requiring terms and closing and, and escrow money that we just weren't comfortable with. That has changed. And we're seeing that now. We just put a site under contract recently where we were able to achieve developer returns. We would not have gotten those in 2019. I wouldn't say land has gotten cheaper by any means, but we are seeing the ability to negotiate land contracts in terms that are a little bit more favorable and give us a little bit more time to get through the process. Another one I think that comes to mind as a result of the last year and a half is interaction with cities and going through the entitlements process. I think it's become more clear than ever how important, how critical senior housing is to the community, a community, and the ability to keep seniors safe in the communities where they've lived and worked and and raised families and worshipped, etc. I think the education has increased with cities and they look at senior housing even more favorable than they did in the past, which is definitely a, a benefit. I also want to talk about the sort of operator and developer relationship. So I know that you all work with a few different operators, Morningstar Senior Living, I know Harbor Retirement Associates, Capella. So with this pandemic, how has the operator-developer relationship changed? I mean, what's different now than before the pandemic? You know, I'm not sure that it's changed so much as it's reinforced what we already knew. But the relationship between the developer slash owner and the operator is just is absolutely critical to success in this industry. You know, first of all, I mean, just I cannot overstress how amazing Morningstar and Harbor Retirement have, have performed through this crisis. Uh, the amount of stress and responsibility that they've dealt with and the obstacles that they've overcome is just is absolutely astounding. Our relationship with both of those groups has been years in the making, but we couldn't feel more fortunate to have been aligned with them as we've gone through what we and what they've gone through over the last year and a half. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is just, this has made that realization of, of the, that partnership just even more obvious to us and how critical that it is that, that we're aligned. I think that we've always viewed our, our operators as partners. And that partnership starts at the very beginning. We don't put a site under contract without our operator having already looked at it and vetted it and working on it with us. I kind of alluded to this before, but one of our main tenets at, at Confluence Senior Living is the best way that we can exceed expectations for our investors is to build buildings that set our operators up for success. And the only way we can accomplish that is really through a true partnership that has the operators weighing in heavily on design and site development, but really on design to make sure that we're building buildings that get them what they need with respect to both healthcare and hospitality. So that has just become even more critical than ever before as we look at new projects. And as how, as residents interact and families interact with the building, and they have questions about COVID, they want to know how have we changed, how are they safe if something like this were to happen again. And so the ability for us to, to have that partnership and know that we're delivering buildings that our operators can stand behind and can answer those questions with clarity and, and positivity is, is really become more critical than ever. From a developer's perspective, I'm curious, what, what do you look for in senior living partners? And then how also can senior living providers, you know, be good project partners? Sure. And actually, let me just go back to that last question real quick on, on Capella. So we have worked with Capella in the past. We don't currently have anything with them, but we have been tracking how they've been working through this pandemic. And I, I have to say, we've been extremely impressed with them as well. A few months ago, our team volunteered with them because they have both a nonprofit and then the for-profit operating side. We worked with their non nonprofit team to put together care boxes that were sent out to all of their associates, which I think is a real testament to the to their approach and, and focus on making sure that their whole organization was taken care of during such a, a stressful time. So I think that 
yeah, that's kind of an answer to your last question, but it is a lead into to what we view as, as a good partnership. I think the first and probably most critical thing happens up front. So to make sure that you are aligned with the operator on how are they going to run the building? What is the associated, associated lease up uh, projections, the margin expectations, having all of those critical conversations up front does two things. One is it, it, it makes sure that you're all on the same page. And two, it makes sure that as a developer, you understand what are the hot buttons for your operators? What are the things that you need to be delivering? And what are the questions that you need to be asking them early on to, again, make sure that you're delivering buildings that are setting them up for success? And okay, on the flip side, is there something that you see senior living providers do, you know, from a developer's perspective that you think maybe that's a bad idea or some things that you see that, you know, you wouldn't recommend providers do? That's a tough one. You know, because we are... Our relationship with our operators are so long standing and we have things pretty much dialed in. I think if I were, maybe I'll look at that as if we were bringing on a new operating partner and what are some things that we wouldn't want them to do. I think the number one thing would be for them to feel like they don't have a voice in the room and for them to not speak up loudly and express exactly what it is that they're looking for when it comes to their input on the development side of the process. I think that's good advice for our listeners who, you know, surely many of them are, are with providers. So I want to I want to go back to something that you had mentioned earlier. You talked about Confluence whole health standard and how you're working that into your communities now. So I guess first off, tell me what that is and how you arrived on it. But also, how how are you working that into communities today? What does that look like? Yeah. So I'll give you. Let me pull up my notes here. I'll give you what the the official definition that we we defined it, and then I'll tell you what it actually is. But we're defining the whole health standard as a holistic and innovative design approach to senior living development that incorporates innovations to ensure residents' physical and mental health, and the end product being a healthy environment for seniors, staff, and visitors, both physically and mentally. That's a lot of jargon. What What's really going on here, and this, this concept was born out of a design effort that we were working on with Morningstar already two projects, one in Mission Viejo, California, and then another one in Observatory Park here in Denver. We were already collaborating with them to work on bringing some cutting edge technologies into the building that and making those as part of our design standards. We were in the middle of that when this when this pandemic hit. And so we realized that we needed to take this to the next level and and figure out what changes. And this this is what I was referring to earlier with all the time that was spent with our architects and interior designers. What changes do we need to implement into our existing buildings, the buildings that are under design or under construction, and then what needs to make it into the design going forward? And what's interesting is a lot of a lot of the factors or a lot of the highlights that we landed on are behind the walls, if you will. So there are things that would not be immediately obvious to you when you walked into a building. For instance, with the HVAC system, we're using this far UVC light field, which helps reduce the spread of airborne-mediated microbial diseases. We have antimicrobial, basically everything, countertops, surfaces, etc. There's a kiosk system for seamless and distance sign-in. The operator, Morningstar, took on a telehealth training for infection control. These are a lot of things that you don't see when you walk into the building immediately. But we made some real changes to to what is obvious. Uh, the most notable one is a real focus on outdoor space, dining. Uh, specific, we are specifically programming outdoor dining space, whereas in the past, you know, we might have had a patio with some, some chairs that was close to the dining room. Now we're saying, yeah, we're going to have outdoor dining as, as part of our culinary offering. And it's more than just an outdoor grill. Having outdoor access for residents in the form of units, patios, 
more indoor outdoor space wherever possible. That's a, a real change and something that we're already seeing a great response to from from residents and from families. So you combine all of this and it's this whole health standard that what we're really trying to do here is evaluate design of senior housing that keeps the user and the consumer in mind and allows the operator to deliver healthcare and hospitality in a real healthy and, and, and physically beneficial manner. I have kind of a follow-up to that last question. I don't know that you even know the answer to this, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on it. You know, it seems to me like there are a lot of you know, really, really good, good ideas in terms of things that you can change about the way senior living communities are designed in the this post pandemic world. But my one of the questions I have in my mind is, you know, how long will that last? Is this do do you sense that this is a a real change in the way that communities are designed? Or do you sense that this is something that might only last for the next, you know, however long it takes us to get really past this COVID pandemic? I guess, yeah, do you have any thoughts on the longevity of some of these trends? Yeah, absolutely. I, that's one thing, and and I think that uh, I think I heard this from from Matt Turner over at Morningstar said that what we don't want to do is redesign our buildings for the hundred year flood, meaning we're not going to make these fundamental changes to the way that we approach design, so that in five years somebody walks into one of our buildings and, and says, "Oh man, this thing must have been designed in twenty twenty. Look at what crazy thing they did for COVID." All of the changes that we are implementing are to should be accretive to the design and something that will be long lasting in a beneficial way. Go back to that that HVAC system and, and the antimicrobial antimicrobial air filtration system. This is something that you'll never see. It is something that you'll be able to talk about with residents and, and their families, but that is not something that is going to be some negative impact to design. And so when we went through and designed or came up with this whole health standard, we were very cognizant of exactly that, of not making changes now that are so short-sighted that that will make our buildings obsolete in the near future. So I want to talk about the ways that Confluent is growing this year and beyond. So I think you have mentioned some of this during our discussion today, but tell me, you know, what projects you're working on now? And I guess also, uh, it seems like maybe development is starting to ramp back up a little bit. So, you know, as you're working on these projects, are you seeing signs of that happening? Yes. So the three that we're working on now, we have two under construction uh, that are just wrapping up, actually. Uh, one is is actually done and, and waiting for licensure. Another one will be done in the next six weeks. And then we have the the three that we broke around on this year, which are Mission Viejo, California, Observatory Park, which is a essentially... Denver, core Denver. And the third one that I mentioned in Ohio is in Shaker Heights, which is a, a suburb of Cleveland. That's all we're going to be able to pull off this year, uh, unfortunately, because of the commodity pricing. So we had a project that we were working on that we actually are just to, just terminated the contract because it was slated for a 2021 groundbreak towards the end of the year. And we just we cannot figure out a way to, to make that pencil. That said, we also recently just put a new site under contract. By the time we get through entitlements and design, it'll be a mid 2022 groundbreak. And so we really feel like by that point, we'll start to see some relief going back to that equilibrium comment I made earlier. So we are more, we are certainly still active. And as a response to to what we heard from our investors and what we're seeing in the capital markets, I would say in some ways we're more bullish than ever. 
on the space. Uh, I'll just do a quick side here. So Confluence Senior Living is a subsidiary of Confluent Development, which is a larger full-service commercial real estate development firm also based here in Denver. So we are not just working on just view the world through the senior housing light. We also do industrial and, and mixed use and retail and hospitality, multifamily, etc. When we look at the world of commercial real estate with respect to all the asset classes that we work in, we are just as, if not more bullish to senior housing than we ever have been. In fact, I would say we have spent the last 10 years getting ready for right now. We've been in the senior housing space for for almost a decade, for nine years, and we have spent those nine years preparing for what's about to happen to us from a demand for just a pure economic standpoint from a demand cycle right now. And that includes everything from creating long lasting relationships with our operators, taking 20 plus buildings through the full development cycle. We've gone through a handful of sales to prove the concept to our investors and and understand what the returns can look like. And we've really become students of senior housing on the entitlement side, the construction side, the asset management side. All of that work has been for us to be ready to be an extremely forward-thinking and aggressive senior housing developer as we prepare for this boomer wave that that we all know has not even shown up yet. So long way of saying, yes, we still are very, very much in the senior housing development industry. If anything, I foresee us ramping up our new starts as we can figure those out, and it'll be a big part of our future. Yeah. And I want to make sure I clarify for our listeners. So when you say you're bullish, I think you just mentioned this, but you're referring to the big demographic wave, you know, the baby boomers, the so-called, you know, silver tsunami, people call it. Uh, th- that's what you're referring to. That's right. And and again, I mean, uh, you know, maybe I'm, I'm a, a product of, of spending too much time reading senior housing news. So I just assume <laughs> we all know what we're talking about. But yeah, I mean, the, the quick stat that, that most people who will actually listen to this are aware of, the average age of our portfolio is 83. We're still three to four years away from the from the baby boomers actually moving in or actually needing the the product that we're providing. That does create a little bit of an interesting dynamic, though. One thing that we've talked a lot with our operators over the last few years is there is often a segregation between the consumer and the user. What we build, the user is certainly the resident, and we need to be building and developing buildings that are cater towards that resident, have the healthcare components that are necessary, the building is usable, is very friendly for them. But oftentimes the decision of where and when the resident is going to move in is made by that adult child. And that really influences our design and the hospitality driven, the culinary focus, uh, the location that we choose. We, we're often making a lot of those decisions to, to appeal to the consumer. And that's something that our operators are extraordinarily talented at. We've talked a little bit about capital providers during this podcast today. So it, it sounds like capital providers have started to, you know, come back to the industry. But I'm curious, you know, now that we're in this post-pandemic, well, we're not in this post-pandemic period, but now that we are starting to move toward a post-pandemic period, are capital providers looking for different kinds of projects now? Do you think they have new standards that they didn't, you know, before the pandemic? Yes and no. I'll break that up into when I hear capital, I think both debt and equity, and and they are they are two different animals. So, and, and I'll do my best to answer this how our, our CFO would. With respect to debt, yeah, as I mentioned, we'll do three new deals this year. All three of those are are with different banks. They're all construction lender, traditional construction lenders. So we did not go down the debt fund or, or the MES route. 
And while terms are not as good as they were in 2019, the gap really wasn't that big with respect to a, a construction loan that we would have we would have signed up for a year and a half ago. I would say that leverage has come down from pre-pandemic levels. Uh, recourse has stayed the same or maybe even gone up, but LIBOR floors have become commonplace and 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 there are a lot of there's still a lot of large players that are on the sidelines. So when we went through those three projects to, to line up the debt, we certainly received less term sheets than we would have in the past. But as you mentioned, I, I do I believe this is starting to change. I'm hearing about more and more lenders coming back. With the existing lenders that we have, we've heard multiple times that they will become more selective on who they're lending to and which projects they're lending on. Uh, relationships have become even more critical. And, and the big thing that we're hearing is that past performance really is becoming a gating item. So it, it is changing on the, on the lending side. With respect to equity, we have done one development project or we're working on one project right now with an institutional partner, which is going really well. But the rest of our projects have been capitalized through a combination of private high net worth family offices. And we've gone through three fundraisers, uh, these with these high net worth or, or private equity fundraisers. And the third one was actually completed this year in, in 2021. So to answer your question specifically, this is, was a very relevant conversation uh, that we've had this year. And, and as you can imagine, we had a lot of questions about COVID and operations and the future of senior housing. We definitely did some educating for some of our new investors on the differences between you know, levels of acuity and, and how the operators were handling the pandemic. But we got that fund closed. In fact, I, I think we might have even been oversubscribed. And that's something that we're really proud of and a testament to our leadership. But I think it's also a testament to the desire of investors to continue, or in some cases, in the first time, be active in the senior housing asset class. And one thing that we heard that is a change uh, as a result of the pandemic, it really seems like investors are chasing and, and looking for yield wherever they can find it. And development deals is one space where they see that that opportunity that they're not finding a lot of, of other real estate asset classes or real estate investments. So that has been a change is the, is the, the focus and questions regarding the yield of the projects and, and the cash flowing capabilities. We were kind of already on, or no, we were certainly already on this track before, but the, the high barrier to entry is another uh, capital focus that has, has shifted. And we are really seeing a lot of questions and a lot of demand for the, the high barrier to entry. And, and that, that term gets thrown around a lot. We view that to mean sites and projects that are that are difficult to get done, whether that comes in the form of, of a long rezone, of a really tight site that takes some real creative design, uh, just projects that that take time and and energy and investment to get them out but we all know or we we're already seeing that the the response to that that work and that investment results in in higher NOI lower cap rates and and that has really been a, a shift from our investors to to focus on those types of projects so before we wrap up today, I wanted to get your take on just generally sort of what we can expect here in the, the months ahead. So, you know, given that obviously nobody has a crystal ball, you know, from, from, from your developer perspective, where do you think development of the senior living industry will be, you know, in, let's say, the next three months, in the next six months, and then maybe a year from now? Uh, the lovely crystal ball question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll just quickly talk about operations there and, and not very long because we don't operate and I'm not going to pretend to be, you know, an, an expert there, but we do asset manage and, and we have a portfolio that's, that's 
that we're paying a lot of attention to. The pent-up demand that everybody's talking about is real, at least from from our perspective. March and April had the highest amount of move-ins that we've ever had in, in our history. I think for the next three months or three to six months, that pent-up demand will continue. But then after that, it's going to slowly move back and, and taper off to our traditional move-in velocity. And again, I'm, I won't spend a lot of time on this because it's not my area of expertise, but on a 12-month time frame. One thing I'm very concerned with, as is a lot of people, is the availability of and the cost of labor in our industry. I don't see that solving itself, and certainly not in the next 12 months. There's some technology that we can make some changes on the periphery, but that's something that will be a 12-month-plus uh, impact. And that does flow, even though that's on the operations side, that does flow into development because it, it impacts the way that we underwrite projects and it impacts the margins. So that's a longer-term concern. With respect to just peer development, the next three to six months are going to be really tough for all the reasons that I said before for the price of construction. Uh, I talked about how we had to buy lumber uh, and we don't, we don't dirt wood. That's not, not what we do. So that's the type of stuff that has to get done in the next three to six months. Longer term, again, as I mentioned, I do believe that we'll find a relief valve. You know, it's really a question of elasticity. So construction pricing and labor can adjust so quickly and, and so much quicker than the ability to adjust rates and, and margins. And so it takes time to find that equilibrium. I, I think that that's a 12 to 18 month cycle. Now, that said, if we continue to see the the amount of new starts plummet, as we have for the last year and a half, and, and likely that will continue in the future, we may actually get back out of equilibrium within you know the 24 to 36 month time frame as as we see demand start to outpace supply so as always it's a pendulum that's swinging but you know this 12 month window that you asked me to crystal ball i think it's longer than that uh, and it, it will recover and that's the main reason that we continue to aggressively pursue new markets and, and new deals well, I think those are great words to end this on. So, John Reinsma, thank you so much for coming on Transform today. I think this was a great discussion. I know I learned a lot. So, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for the time. Have a great day. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our upcoming build event in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com slash events for the latest updates on build and our other scheduled events. Again, I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.